Hello and welcome back to Out of Office. I'm your host, Malika Kapoor. Today, I'm delighted to bring you one of my favorite conversations. It's with John Chambers, the former CEO of Cisco, and it's stayed with me because of his raw candor and that brilliant laugh. Take a listen, you'll know what I mean. Hi there, welcome back to Out of Office. I'm your host, Malika Kapoor. My guest today is a legend in the tech industry. John Chambers is the former CEO and executive chairman of Cisco Systems. When John joined Cisco in 1991, it was a small network operator. It soon grew into an industry giant and became one of the most valuable companies in the world. We shared our success with our customers and our employees. We created 10,000 millionaires back when a million dollars could buy you a house in Silicon Valley. Mm-hmm. Uh, we shared that success across the board. And while we were far from perfect, we dreamed big. John is now the founder and CEO of JC2 Ventures, which focuses on helping disruptive startups from around the world build and scale. So my goal is how do you get startups in all 50 states in the US, in all 29 states in India, all 13 regions in France, and then do it in a way it completely transforms a geographic region and how you can change the future and disrupt yourself and uh, do it in a way that benefits all of America and a model for others, all of Europe and a model for others and all of India. Dreaming too big? I don't think so. He's off to a good start. Of the 20 startups, eight are already unicorns. I talked to John about his work, about technology, his career, leadership, and about something else John places a huge premium on, culture, creating the right culture at work. Well, the culture is one that we treat each other as family, that we just do the right thing. Whether it's in the office, boardroom, or during a bring your child to work day. The young lady came up to the stage and was standing in the line very patiently and she had her, her question written uh, on her uh, paper in the hand. She tried to ask it, she couldn't get it out. She tried to ask it again, she couldn't get it out. And uh, she started to cry and she said, I'm dyslexic and she turned around and headed back to her seat. And uh, with 500 people watching, as you can imagine, it was an emotional moment. And I walked off the stage and followed her back to where she was sitting beside one of her parents. And I uh, uh, said, I'm dyslexic too. It was the first time John had gone public about his dyslexia. He thought he'd made a big mistake. It was a turning point for him in his personal and professional life. And I thought the leaders expected me to be invincible almost superhuman. And I thought of people who I had weaknesses that they they wouldn't follow me as much, etc. The opposite turned out to be true. There's all that and much more in this episode of Out of Office with John Chambers. Here's our conversation. Great. We'll go for about half an hour and here we go. John, welcome to Out of Office. Alika, it's a pleasure to be with you today. We'll try to make this one of your best sessions of the year. Oh, yay. Excellent. I'm looking forward to that. (laughs) I always dream big. John, you know, when people hear your name, the moment you say um, John Chambers, the immediate reaction is, oh, yes, Cisco. Cisco has come to define you, not just define your career, but define you. How does that sit with you today? 
I'm very, very comfortable uh, with that. Uh, Cisco is a company that I think did change the world, the way you work, live, learn, and play. And when we said that in early 90s, uh, people said, you don't understand, John. You move around zeros and ones, and it's you techies talking. And I said, no, it's going to change every aspect of our lives, mainly for the better. Now, every company is a network company, and every mm-hmm. company and every country is about to become digital, whether you're in India or the U.S. or in Europe. And I'm proud of very much of what we did at the company, very proud of our economic return, most valuable company in the world for a period of time, uh, but also number one in corporate social responsibility is recognized by President Obama and, and uh, uh, Secretary Clinton or President Bush and, and Secretary Rice, uh, same from China, same from India, same from France, et cetera. And we shared our success with our customers and our employees. We created 10,000 millionaires back when a million dollars could buy you a house in Silicon Valley. Mm -hmm. Uh, We shared that success across the board. And while we were far from perfect, we dreamed big. You know, Shimon Perez taught me an awful lot about no room in the world for small dreams. We, We had dreams that others thought were impossible, and yet... We often executed on them and uh, we won as a team and we won with an ecosystem where we try to have everybody in our ecosystem win together. So I'm very proud of that, perhaps most proud of the culture uh, in terms of what it really means to to me and to the rest of the organization, trying to replicate it with startups now, with 20 startups Mm -hmm. and startups in India, U.S. and uh, France. So similar playbook. Uh, a different chapter in my life. You know, as a former chairman and CEO of Cisco, and you had such a long innings at the company, you ran it when it became one of the most valuable companies in the world. Looking back at your time with Cisco, what what gives you the greatest satisfaction? Oh, it's how we change the world. Uh, and it's our culture. You know, the economic results speak for themselves. You know, fifteen thousand percent increase in stock. If you would have put a dollar in uh, at the beginning, you would have, when I exited Cisco, been worth fifteen thousand uh, dollars. Sharing that with our customers, employees, having the highest customer satisfaction in high tech. Uh, getting the balance, which I think the world's finally waking up to. It's about economic returns, but also benefit to society. And we did both uh, in terms of the approach. So uh, it was the success in sharing that change in the world, but also sharing that with our employees and our partners in a way you win together. I'm surprised more companies don't follow a similar model on that, but that's what I'm uh, most proud of, but also a model that I try to get my 20 startups to follow as well. Very simply, how would you describe that model? It basically is one that the leadership has responsibility to set the vision and strategy for the company. Uh, They then build the leadership team around that vision and strategy to implement it. They define the culture, which is what so many companies around the world, big and small, lose track of. Culture is every bit as important as strategy and vision, and it varies dramatically by companies, but great companies always have unbelievably strange strange, uh, strong cultures. You may like them, you may not, but very strong. And then it's having the courage to reinvent yourself and to constantly change. That's probably the hardest part. It's the reason CEOs always stay in their job an average of five years. Most CEOs cannot reinvent themselves, uh, don't understand the importance of it. It takes courage to change yourself, and it's risky uh, in terms of the approach, especially if what you're doing is right. But Malika, the takeaway here is that doing the right thing too long is equally as bad as doing the wrong thing. So having the courage to reinvent, 
uh, catch new market transitions enabled by new technologies, and then uh, uh, empowering a team to make it happen. You talk a lot about the culture, the creating the right culture at a company, and the culture, not only the one that you created at Cisco, the one that you're trying to create now in your new venture, JC2 Ventures. What's that culture? Well, the culture is one that we treat each other as family, that we just do the right thing, that we put our customers first, that we dream big, number one or number two, learn that from Jack Welch or we don't play, uh, that uh, we do it in an inclusive approach. Uh, we are an aggressive company, but we also treat everybody like uh, with respect. I knew every illness of every employee out of the 75,000 employees that was life-threatening for them, their spouse, their kids, their parents. We were there for them in a way that no one else was. I still get lots of calls, even though I've been gone for seven years, about, John, can you help me with this? Here's what I'm finding out, et cetera. And, mm -hmm. and to really make a difference and build that type of teamwork uh, and to change the world is, is exciting. And so that's how I describe the culture. But it's one on a, a strategy that the Internet changes the way the world works, lives, learns, and plays. Put your customers and your people first. It sounds basic. Just do the right thing. If your culture is right, it should dictate almost every decision you make. And if you watch leadership around the world in politics or in business uh, or in society, uh, usually they lead with their culture and their values, uh, equally as important to their theoretical strategy and goals. At JC2 Ventures, you're investing in companies around the world, like you just mentioned, even some in India, various parts of the world. A lot of these are tech companies with the power to really be extremely disruptive. Is that right? That is correct. Uh, uh, I, I believe in doing playbooks for everything I do. Uh, we talked briefly earlier before we started recording about being dyslexic. Uh, when I have a playbook, I can operate it with tremendous speed. And instead of being bureaucracy and slowing you down, it really speeds you up. So uh, I have a, a playbook on key goals and aspirations. My reasons on startups, however, might surprise your listeners. Uh, I've achieved more uh, success than I ever dreamed I would in life. And I believe it's time to continue to give back, which I think I've done reasonably well on. And the future of all job creation, whether you're in Asia, US, Europe, will be around startups. And the big companies, because of automation, digitization, et cetera, will not add headcount. Uh, it will be a digital world, and people don't quite grasp what that means. That means every company, whether you're healthcare, manufacturing, uh, tech, uh, government, is going to be a tech company in terms of the direction. And so my goal is how do you get startups in all 50 states in the U.S., in all 29 states in India, all 13 regions in France, and then do it in a way it completely transforms a geographic region, including my home state of West Virginia, where we're going to make it the first true startup state with, regardless of political party, a vision of how you can change the future and disrupt yourself and uh, do it in a way that benefits all of America and a model for others, all of Europe and a model for others and all of India. Dreaming too big? I don't think so. Uh, and we're off to a pretty good start. Now, when we started, I was a little bit nervous, but so far the results have been very good. 20 startups, we've got eight unicorns already. Uh, very proud of that. And uh, that's almost 1% of the US unicorn market, which is amazing for a very small uh, organization. You talk so much about the power of disruption. And you said you grew up in West Virginia and the area failed to disrupt and you saw the consequences of that. What does that mean? What do you mean by that? Well, in, in simple terms, when I was growing up in West Virginia, it was the chemical center of the world. 
FMC Carbide DuPont. 6,000 engineers in Charleston, West Virginia, corporate headquarters, just like Silicon Valley. And we were the coal mining center of the world with 125,000 well-paid coal miners, et cetera. But because we didn't disrupt ourselves, because we didn't evolve to the next level, uh, we became one of the more challenged states in the U.S., and as you see that occur, you realize what happens to your geography. Now, by the way, we're going to change that, and we may want to talk about that later. Uh, but then I went into uh, IBM and uh, into uh, the Boston area with Wang, uh, where they were the top computer company, mainframes, IBM, wonderful company. And yet, because they didn't disrupt themselves, when many computers came along, the Wangs of the world, the Dex, they got disrupted. Then Dex and Wang got disrupted by the PC players. Then we disrupted the PC server players at Cisco with the internet. Then cloud disrupts that group. And 128 lost its magic around Boston. It was the Silicon Valley, but because we didn't change, MIT didn't change, the organization didn't change, we got left behind in high tech. And now, by the way, Silicon Valley is doing great, but it's going to be challenged. If we don't change faster in Silicon Valley, it'll be Austin, Texas, or it will be Paris, or it'll be Bangalore. And uh, that to me is kind of exciting. And that's one of the, the benefits of the, the terrible pandemic we had to go through with all the human suffering associated with it. We've learned how to do things remotely with tremendous speed and work virtually. So all of a sudden, you don't have to be in a Silicon Valley really to participate uh, in major tech startups and really make a difference uh, in your future. What was your childhood like in West Virginia? I know you're the son of doctors. It, uh, I was very fortunate. Uh, uh, I had uh, two parents who were amazing. My mom uh, was uh, in internal medicine, psychiatry, and she was uh, a, a female athlete at the time. That wasn't as much accepted. What what sport did she play, or was she track and field? Missed all of them. Missed oh. And everything from swimming to lacrosse to table tennis, ballroom dancing, oh, wow. uh, et cetera, on it. And uh, she broke a lot of gender barriers, and she was the one who taught me emotional IQ and, and how to be in, in touch. And she had never let me go to bed angry or frustrated. Oh. And that's kind of hard when you're in high school and they knock on the door and say, Hey, <laughs> I have a high schooler. I know I have a high school son. <laughs> yeah. So you know what that's like. And uh, yet you're so important to him to be very candid. And my dad, he was the visionary. He could see things five, 10, 15 years out, delivered 6,000 babies, about a fourth of them for free uh, for people that you know, were financially challenged on it. But he's also a business person, but he taught me never to make my first move on the chess game. He taught me to do huh. bridges same way until I'd played out the hand or played out the game to the end. And then what are the scenarios? How do you play it through? And while that slows you down at the start, it allows you to move with tremendous speed. So he taught me how to see what was happening to West Virginia and be able to see around the corners. So when I saw it at IBM, I knew what was going to happen next. When I saw it at Wang and Boston 128, I knew what was going to happen next. Uh, when I saw the economic slowdown coming in 2000, uh, and uh, I said, it's a hundred year flood. It's going to be much worse than we realized. And unfortunately it was accurate. And in 2008 with the great recession, uh, I learned from my mistakes of 2001. I disrupted myself this time, saw it coming. We called it early in 2007 and we actually economically powered through it very strong, including giving uh, loans to the automotive companies to purchase our equipment, which no other company would do because everybody thought they would go out of, out of business and go bankrupt. Well, because of how we treated them in 2008, 
Pie, uh, uh, we became the number one player in every automotive company in the world. So even though in 2001, I did a $2 billion write down of inventory because I was carrying inventory to meet my customer's need in the dot-com bust. And I got criticized for it. That's fair. Uh, that's part of the job of the CEOs to take risk and, and to be candid when the risk didn't work out as well as you hope. But I learned from it in 2008, we changed. What's the key takeaway? Constantly reinvent yourself, constantly learn. And the other takeaway from parents being doctors uh, under tremendous pressure, it's easy to say, but you got to really stay calm and you can't hide. My dad taught me that when I almost drowned at six years of age in a, a river in West Virginia. And we were fishing and uh, uh, he told me to fish one part of the river and he said, don't get out in the stream. It's unbelievably fast here. It's dangerous. And even though you're a pretty good swimmer for six years of age, this, this could be a problem. And he went a couple hundred yards upstream. And what did I do? I stepped out in the current uh, after about 15 minutes, got swept away, and uh, it was scary. And he yelled at me. I could hear him coming down the river as fast as he could run on the side, hold on to the fishing pole, hold on to the fishing pole. Well, it was a, it was a, 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 an inexpensive fishing pole. Might have cost $5. Yeah. Uh, but because he was concerned about the fishing pole, I grabbed a hold of the fishing pole with both hands, and I was getting banged up against the rocks and tumbled and everything else. Oh, and he kept God. saying, hold on the fishing pole when I'm going down current. He finally got below me, swam out, got me, brought me back in. And I handed him the fishing pole. And he said, do you understand what just about happened? I said, yeah, yes. I, I thought I was going to drown, but obviously you told me to take care of the fishing pole. So I did. He said, no, it, you were in trouble, but because you stayed focused, because you were calm under crisis, uh, you, you came through it. And then he, I don't think he ever told mom this. He took me back up river and said, I'm going to put you in the river again. And this time you're going to do it yourself. Oh my God. And I went right down through the current, right to the edge, waited till there was a spot to come out, got back out. But it taught me how do you deal with crisis in life? And yeah. it's the stories that your, your viewers remember. That's something I tell again and again. And it's especially important now because many of the companies are going to be in trouble this next year that are watching this. Yeah. Uh, the economy is going to slow. No one knows how much. We've got more headwinds than I've ever seen in my lifetime in terms of complexity, geopolitical with Russia, China. Uh, you've got inflation that people haven't seen in 40 years. You've got a Fed that's trying to make a soft landing in the U.S. I would take this soft landing like the, the pilot who landed a plane in Florida the other day who had never flown a plane. That's it, right. Yes. It, yes. It, what it a story. around the runway. It's a good landing. <laughs> and I take that. Uh, and you've got supply chain issues all at one time. So it's going to be complex. And so you've got to keep calm during this and you've got to develop your playbook for how you're going to handle it. And as you do this, it'd be a terrible mistake. You know, you hear the message, never waste a crisis. There's a lot of truth to it. When you have a problem and we're going to have one and the degree they usually are longer and deeper than you think, you say, what am I going to do to deal with it? And you address both what the macro issue is, which is clearly some pretty good headwinds, mm -hmm. but you address, you've probably been stagnant too long yourself. You haven't changed. So what do you have to do differently? So well-run companies will say, yeah, here's what I'm going to do on the macro issue, but being very candid, the areas that I need to do better. And uh, here's what I'm going to do to do them better. Companies who say this is all macro, I'm doing fine. Don't worry about me. Uh, probably have blinders on and could get into trouble pretty quickly. So mm -hmm. you want to do both at the same time. That's what I train my startups to do. And that, unfortunately, I've seen every movie there is to see a Cisco multiple times. People say, how do you know? Well, 
I did, a, did it right a couple of times and, and I did it wrong other times. So I've seen right. a movie where there are alternatives and teaching that is fun. And I guess that's something we didn't hit earlier. I love to teach. I'm a mentor at heart. Uh, I love to try to change the world. I'm a dreamer. Peace to the Middle East. Uh, you know, won the National uh, uh, Defense Gold Medal from France. First uh, non-French business person ever to have won that. Mm -hmm. uh, very honored about the corporate social responsibilities and the Padma Bhushan Award from uh, Prime Minister Modi's government yes. uh, in India, which is a very unique award for that part of the world, as you know, and yes. deeply honored uh, for that. So that's what I enjoy doing. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash GreenFestival. You've been very open about having dyslexia, and I know you decided to go public about it and started talking about it after, after a moment at Take Your Child to Work Day. Yes. Can you tell us a little bit about that? What happened that day? Well, anybody who's dyslexic would tell you it makes you feel dumb. You lose your place as you read, as they come down the classroom to ask you to read because dyslexics read right to left. We superimpose numbers. Uh, it's the reason to this day I never read speeches. I do speeches from an outline and try to talk spontaneous to the audience, whether it's 10,000 people or, or 10 people uh, in terms of the direction. And uh, because I had a wonderful teacher, spatial teacher, when they didn't even understand dyslexia, but she understood learning disorders. She, Mrs. Anderson, taught me over three years how to deal with it. And it doesn't go away, but you can, uh, you learn how to compensate. And so take our child to work day, uh, you know, the children, they grill you with questions and it all, it makes me sweat even today with the kids. You, you They have no idea what, what, you don't know what they're going to ask you. And often you can hear the questions the parents told them to ask as right. well. And it's just a great cultural exchange to answer that. But a young lady came up to the stage and was standing in line very patiently. And she had her, her question written uh, on her uh, paper in the hand. She tried to ask it. And she couldn't get it out. She tried to ask it again. She couldn't get it out. And uh, she started to cry. And she said, I'm dyslexic. And she turned around and headed back to her seat. And uh, with 500 people watching, as you can imagine, it was an emotional moment. And I walked off the stage and followed her back to where she was sitting beside one of her parents. And I uh, uh, said, I'm dyslexic too. And uh, here's how you get the question out. And you can't memorize it because you'll lose track of it and don't read it. But look at it just like you're talking to your parent, you're talking to me, and visualize what you want to do, look into the person's eyes and have it like a conversation, and uh, you, can, you can get through that. And uh, uh, I said, let's go back up to the stage, let's ask the question again. As I walked back up, the room was strangely quiet, and I realized I'd left my lavalier mic on. So I had uh, uh, told people what I thought was my biggest weakness in life, um, something that even now my hands swept. And if you talk to dyslexics, they would tell you most of us, and I was riding in the car, watching a ball game with uh, uh, another dyslexic last night, and you can spot each other because of your thought process on it. So the four of us were there, but two dyslexics on it. 
uh, you you have to approach it differently to be able to deal with it. So uh, I uh, uh, she asked the question. It was great. I gave a great answer, complimented her. Uh, she went away feeling good, which is what it was all about. We taught culture. We treat everybody the same at Cisco. We watch out for our family uh, on it. But I thought um, I'd, I'd, I'd made a major mistake. And I thought the leaders expected me to be invincible, almost superhuman. Uh, and uh, uh, we did things that no other company could do, and we did them regularly. And I thought if people knew I had weaknesses, that they they wouldn't follow me as much, et cetera. The opposite turned out to be true. I got more responses for that session than I had any session ever at Cisco with people saying, I appreciate your honesty, your transparency. I'm dyslexic or my children are dyslexic or John, you connected with me. I saw a side that I hadn't seen before. And so I thought, good, good deed. I'm fine. You know, it's like doing an interview with you. If I walk away at the end and I didn't get skinned on something, I feel that's, that's very positive. Uh, but then a person called me up in fortune and said, John, I, I want to do an article on you and uh, Chuck Schwab and Richard Branson, you know, three leaders who are dyslexic and no one's rewritten really about it. And I said, no, I really don't want to talk on that. I'm honored, but uh, it makes me uncomfortable. And I actually consider it a weakness. And she said, my son's dyslexic. The journalist she had me. She had me on that. And so I talked to him and I said, all right, I'll do the article. And so since then, I have been honored to uh, talk about dyslexia very openly to individual dyslexics, which I do on a regular basis, uh, to uh, leadership. It will surprise you, Malika, almost 30% of CEOs are dyslexic. Almost none of them will admit to it. And the only reason I know the number is because I can spot them on the thought pattern. And so right. when we're having a conversation, if we're by ourselves or with a small group, I will at the right point in time, very gently say, are you dyslexic? And they'll look at me like, how did you know? I don't right. tell people, but I can see the thought process. Dyslexics go A, B, Z. They gather data from multiple areas. Then they can't do it serially, but they picture how it all comes together. And if they are able to overcome that, they can perhaps move with the speed and a vision that that serial entrepreneurs may not be able to do as well. So you take a weakness, try to make it a strength. Would I prefer not to be dyslexic? Of course, but uh, you deal with life the way it is, not the way you wish it was. And my parents taught me that. What a story. And I'm just sitting here thinking, I can only imagine what it did to that girl, the young lady who came up on stage and had to say, I'm dyslexic. I mean, in front of 500 people. And then having you reach out to her and give her that support and confidence, it must have meant the world to her. Looking back, what yes. what did it mean to you to be able to support her like that? Well, first on the transactional level, uh, it made me very comfortable talking to other dyslexics who need help because your parents will always tell you you're smart and the parents yes. don't have any credibility, as you know, with your teenage son. Yes. Uh, and uh, uh, you always tell him that he's smart and, and he's handsome and, and he's a good athlete. And, yes. and so we as parents don't have that credibility. Same thing with, with my kids who are now, I'm a grandfather. Uh, but the ability to share with them what it's like, that you understand their fear, you understand how they think. And they need role models and examples that have been able to navigate through it. Again, I'm far from perfect, but they want to see people that can do it. And then they believe they can perhaps do it. And you talk them through what the fear is like. 
And you know what it feels like in your stomach when that fear hits you uh, on it, especially when you're speaking in public or trying to read a speech. And then you watch them progress. And so you and I had three people who were dyslexic this year graduate uh, uh, from college. And all three originally were struggling with first, would they go to college? And secondly, unlikely to get into a very good college. All three of them got into great colleges, Mm -hmm. Uh, but they just dropped me a note at the end and said, just thank you. You make a difference. And of course the parent, it means the world because we want to do anything we can do to help our children uh, on that. And all we want to do is be healthy and happy in life. Did it make you sort of feel more comfortable to be able to lead with empathy? Two separate questions. Uh, Did dyslexia make me more comfortable to lead with people knowing I'm a dyslexic dancer is no, because right now my hands are still sweating. Uh, it makes me uncomfortable even to talk about it. Did it teach me never to laugh at anybody else? Absolutely. Malika in all my years of leadership, I've never raised my voice ever. Really? And, uh, uh, make no mistake about it. If you ask my team, if you ask Megan, I have very high expectations. I expect her to hit a home run every time. And uh, uh, she almost never disappoints. And when she does, I'll gently say, hey, this is something we could have done better, but I expect it back the other way. Uh, so leading with empathy, I would say yes. And that's my mom teaching me as well. And uh, uh, it's amazing how many people don't treat other people well, especially as mm-hmm. they've been successful, they become overconfident and don't listen. You learn from everyone and we're all equal in life. And so that connectivity is something that I do and I take risk on it. You know, I, I form friendships with government leaders around the world, like Prime Minister Modi is a very good friend. President Macron in France is a very good friend. I'm a French tech ambassador. Uh, you know, leaders, George Bush, uh, Bill Clinton uh, throughout the years, but also people that are just individuals that I form tight friendships with. So it teaches you to connect if you have the courage to, to let down your guard and to be exposed. And then when you do that, allow somebody else to connect. And then an empathy story that surprises people uh, is that most of us men have trouble telling somebody other than our spouse that we love them and Mm -hmm. definitely have trouble giving somebody a hug. And uh, I was in that mode and uh, I uh, had the chance. I went to uh, Duke, West Virginia, Indiana school, nine and a half years of college, wherever they had a good basketball team. Uh, But I was there at Duke with Coach Zeski, who happened to go to school uh, at the same place I did at IU, and I ran the NBA association there, and and he was, of course, on Bobby Knight's basketball team uh, as an assistant uh, for an NBA school, and we been formed friendships, but he asked me many years later, I would follow Duke and go to the games to uh, be a part of uh, uh, the team dinner the night before they played Stanford and Duke was one and Stanford was two. And it was a big event, national TV. And they were kind enough to give us really great seats. Uh, but he said, your assignment is to teach the number six player. He's going to start in place of his roommate. Who's the number five player, because it's the right matchup for us. And John, I want you to teach him. It's about the team winning. Uh, it's about doing what's right in total. And he was hesitant because he did not want to hurt his roommate. And I get that. And so uh, in the first 15 minutes of dinner, there were two tables. I accomplished my goal and I was watching and listening. And these were big guys. I mean, huge, tremendous athletes. 
um, and very, very physical. I mean, they played, they played tough and, uh, they were talking about how they loved each other really? and how they, uh, cared for each other and they gave each other really hugs. This was oh. at a time. A lot of people didn't do that. And, uh, afterward coach K said, well, John, what do you think? And I said, tremendous culture, teamwork. I did my assignment. Like you told me, et cetera. I don't think this team is quite tough enough, uh, uh, Mike. Uh, they, uh, you know, they may not be tough enough to get what you wanted this year. <laughs> it turned out to be a national championship team, most physical team ever. <laughs> they were amazing. And so I learned that expression, your emotions, whether it was dyslexia to the young lady, whether it's to my family, telling them I love them, wanting to hug my kids a hundred times a day, yes. my grandkids, if they let me, which of course they won't. <laughs> and uh, uh, then with people that I really care about having the courage to say, I love you. And only, only say it if you believe it and having the courage to hug. And that's tough with COVID today. We've got to obviously uh, adjust appropriately, but there's one that I, I never thought would exactly uh, turn out the way it did, but it's why you've got to constantly learn. And uh, it's interesting uh, uh, when you give another guy a hug, they kind of look at you at first, like interesting. Mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden you watch them learn. You watch them learn to let down the guard, tell people you care, tell your employees you care, let them know that you have weaknesses. Apologize when you make a strength. Don't raise your voice. When I get my competitors emotional, and get them angry or scared, it's game over. Mm-hmm. Got to be just calm. You execute well. And maybe I'm a little bit too competitive. I do love to compete, as you probably already figured out. And mm-hmm. uh, I believe in building number one teams. Number one or number two, or don't, don't come to the party. And you believe in being nice and the power of being nice and in love. And that's such a beautiful note to end this conversation on. So thank you so much, John, for joining me. I mean, in all these times... Yeah, I've never heard someone talk so openly and warmly and passionately just about love and that it's okay to hug and it's okay to be nice. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Well, it's it's teachable. <clears throat> As uh, Megan will tell you, uh, with my teams, uh, they learn it. Now, it takes some of them a couple of years to learn it. Uh, and then some of them are, are hesitant. And, and you can't be somebody you're not. But Megan would tell you out of my 20 CEOs, probably, what would you say, three, four, seven have done very well on culture and very well about uh, sharing their thoughts, still in a very professional manner, uh, yeah. uh, but really making a difference. And that's what I love as a mentor. You all of a sudden go, they were listening, just like yes. this. <laughs> he actually listened to me. <laughs> That's right, exactly. Well, thank you so much. It's been a real, real pleasure to talk to you. I wish you continued success. You were perfect. It was so relaxing to follow you. That was my conversation with John Chambers, and I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did recording it. We'll be back in two weeks. Till then, do check out some of the other episodes of Out of Office. You'll find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, the Bloomberg Terminal, and Bloomberg.com. This episode was produced by Yang Yang. I'm Malika Kapoor. As always, thank you for listening. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, 
influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at cuttereconomicforum.com.